I'm Xander Wilson, and welcome to The Silver Bullet. This podcast is brought to you by Media and Capital Partners and features interviews with disruptors from all across the Australian business landscape. Here, we chat with startup founders, CEOs, and other business leaders to uncover what they're doing differently to their competitors and discover their silver bullet for business success. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Andrew Job, who is the CEO of mining tech company PlotLogic. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Now, PlotLogic is a is a really young company compared to some of the companies we've had uh, on the podcast so far. It's come all, a long way in the last year when it was, you know, really just a thought. Um, can you tell me a bit about the business and 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 about how you got started? Yeah. So the the business yeah that we've created is really tackling like a giant global opportunity, and that is how do we you know, give the world the natural resources that they need right now without screwing up the planet for tomorrow. And so, you know, starting with this sort of really simple idea, you know, that's something that most people can agree on. And then working out how you physically go and do that is essentially how our business formed. And my background is actually from the mining industry. So I've lived you know, firsthand exactly, you know, that, that opportunity and then looking at how we can use new technology, um, essentially some new sensor technology and machine learning, artificial intelligence to then you know, allow us to essentially crack that nut of, of unlocking this resource opportunity at the same time reducing carbon and, and other waste uh, products. So yeah, that's the sort of idea that we've started to to work through. And last year we were, we were basically still in deep research space. We came out of a really deep tech research project and now we're getting great commercial traction. We've got some you know, large mining companies on our on our client base already and literally growing every week as we start expanding at our portfolio, not just in Australia, but also overseas as well. So it's a, it's a pretty exciting phase of our, of our growth that we're going through. Yeah, definitely. And, and can you just go back to perhaps sort of when the first ideas to come up with something like this or, or, or when you first saw the opportunity that, you know, the industry was something that needed disrupting, disrupting with something like this? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say there was like a moment of epiphany or something, but really this is a slow burn. You know, I started in the mining industry uh, probably before many of your uh, audience have even been born. So I've uh, been around for, for, for quite some time, you know, started in literally on the coalface in 1998 as my very first job in the mining industry. And I've always you know, wrestled with this idea in, in my mind about how we do things you know, knowing full well that the world needs natural resources, but how do we actually do things in a way that's you know inherently not damaging to the planet along the way? And something I've wrestled with, and you know, grew over many many years as I moved into essentially you know executive leadership roles within the industry, and then started talking with some really top level research organisations. So the University of Queensland, um, under a guy named Professor Ross Macri, has an exceptional mining field robotics school had some project involvement with with him and then over a number of coffees and napkin conversations we sort of formulated this sort of general idea which was still quite nebula but was further and further unlocking an actual path forward until we got to essentially 2018 before we really landed on this really um, niche opportunity that allowed us to start on this journey to unlock all this this value so it was a with a long time in the making, um, but um, now that we're actually on that path, the, the growth is is quite exceptional and happening quite fast. You know, as of last year, we were a reasonably small team. Started off with just me, and then 
grew to 20 odd people and, and right now we're, we're 70 odd people in our workforce so really getting some really good scale as, as the industry is starting to really lock on to how we can unlock value for them in their businesses. Yeah, definitely. And and looking forward to sort of, I guess, diving into uh, that whole piece of, of building a company from the start and, and, and a culture. Could you just go into maybe in a little bit more detail, the problem um, that, that the tech is solving or what, what, what was being done uh, prior to, to, to the tech you're implementing and, and, and what was, what was the issue that, that the industry was facing moving forward? Yeah. So we, we address a really significant pain point in the industry and, and right at the at the fundamental level, the way that mining operations work is you go and do some exploration, and then um, you identify a resource that can be you know mined economically, um, and then once you've done that, from that discovery, we call that discovery and exploration. From that discovery play, uh, phase into operations takes about sixteen years, so this is really long lead time to go from discovery into mining production. Then when you get to mining production a lot of the information that's being used to drive quite discrete minute by minute, hour by hour decisions is still reliant on this original data set that was used to make an exploration discovery and then you know, essentially use that to, to make some sort of generic um, analysis to say whether or not the mine you know, conceptually made sense and you know, gold in them there, so to speak. So, so really that has meant that the way that the industry does short-term optimization in terms of extracting exactly the right ore and exactly the right sequence and making sure that when you take a literally a scoop of rocks that you're confident that that is ore versus its waste material or whatever is really based on some very very sparse data and you know it's one of those challenges where the industry sort of accepts and says well that's that's the way things are always done knowing full well that the value lost from that uh, lack of of data fidelity um, is quite massive and so there hasn't been a technology that's allowed us as an industry to then provide that degree of fidelity of the data to actually say we can scan and understand what's made up of every single rock and then have computing power and artificial intelligence algorithms that can then make really high quality predictions about the best way to treat those. So literally, you know, four or five years ago, that's essentially, you know, a conceptual idea that was borderline science fiction, whereas now we've made that completely a reality. And so there's this, this massive pain point that we're solving is how do we actually understand all the rocks in the mine, all the rocks across that entire large, you know, literally two football stadium size, you know, hole in the ground and actually understand the best way to extract those in the right order. Um, and that, that, you know, really is allowing us to, to go to mine sites and say, hey, using this technology, we can make your life easier as a geologist or a mine manager because you're not required to do huge amounts of extra work. It's actually less work, but you're getting this information flow to you that's faster and more sophisticated and better than anything you've had in the past. And then you can use that to actually unlock huge amounts of value. Yeah, definitely. And and one of the things you mentioned earlier was uh, obviously helping mining with with the environmental impact and, and that side of things in terms of efficiencies. We're obviously in in a world right now where where investors and and you know people who are supporting businesses and get getting interested in in that sort of thing that that's obviously a big priority ESG environmental impact and how, how do you sort of tackle messaging around that sort of thing when you know I guess from the outside it it, it could be construed as you know you're you're working with mines that, <laughs> that 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 are mining the earth of these minerals and that and that sort of thing if, if that makes sense so. 
the way that I think about it is, you know, it goes back to our, you know, our original proposition and, and we're a very mission driven company and, and really, you know, ultimately as, as the world transitions to a carbon free economy, um, requires a huge amount of investment into, you know, battery metals and green metals and the like. Um, and, and also there's still very large parts of the world that, you know, are going through a, a process of, you know, loosely dubbed westernization. And so we don't want to deny the opportunity for, for people in, in less developed countries from actually having access to the resources that you and I take for granted that goes into making hospitals and making schools and, and developing the infrastructure and providing, you know, computers and televisions and all that sort of wonderful stuff. So, you know, ultimately, we've looked at this and said, well, you know, if we just tried to solve this by recycling all the, all the metals that exist on the planet right now, there would still be this massive shortfall of minerals. So you can't actually just use recycling as, as, as a silver bullet for it, no pun intended with your podcast. But, you know, ultimately recycling is part of the mix, but it's, but it's only part of the mix because there's just an unprecedented demand for minerals. At the other end of the spectrum, just going out and discovering new metals and new minerals doesn't actually solve anything for two reasons. One, it takes 16 years plus once you've discovered something to actually bring that capacity online. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm 10 years old and living in a less developed country, and then I've got to wait until I'm 26 before I can get an iPhone, that's a, it's a pretty long wait. Um, so, so solving it through exploration, um, you know, is not the answer either, although it is also part of the answer. And, and even within that, if you don't actually change mining practices with these new deposits that come online, really you haven't do it, done anything aside from shift the burden the environmental burden from one particular type of commodity to another. And there's been some people talking about that recently, about the actual legacy of battery metals. If the battery metals are not produced in a way that's actually not harmful to the planet, then really all you're doing is shifting the problem from, from one type of environmental legacy to another. So we see what we're doing as being really instrumental to say, hey, we know we need the resources. We can't, we can't avoid that. No one's been able to solve that. So let's find a way to extract those resources in a way that's actually not going to screw up the planet along the way. And, and that's really where we come in. And that's what we're so driven about, about providing. And, you know, we feel that we need to solve for this for now, as opposed to coming out with some theoretical solution that might be many decades in the making. And we feel if we can move the dial quickly and have a real impact on the planet, then we can scale and, and add incrementally more as we continue on our, on our mission to, to unlock this this opportunity for the planet without without destroying along the way. And you know, the environmental benefits of what we do is a byproduct of, of essentially making the mine more efficient. The other way of looking at it is the byproduct of making the mine more environmentally friendly um, is actually an efficiency gain for the mining clients. And so that's essentially you know two sides of the same coin. Yeah, definitely. And just uh, going back to your your history, I mean you mentioned you've been working in mining for 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 the for quite some time. What were your experiences like working with with other other companies? What what learnings did you take away in terms of um, business practices that you've either learnt from and, and not implemented, or, or you have implemented in starting your own company and your own business in that sector? Yeah, so the mining industry is super interesting space to work in, and you know we've got a lot of uh, amazing talented engineers that that work with us because they're driven by the same mission as us. Um, it's interesting for a number of reasons. One is it's not a, uh, from a field robotics point of view, it's not a plane, it's not like a workshop floor or, or a factory where everything's completely controlled. 
And from a sensing point of view, it's a really dynamic environment. So there's stuff changing all the time. So we've got lots of exciting projects for anybody to work on as a software engineer or AI machine learning person or, or a robotics professional. Um, the, the, the other way that that manifests, and I've seen this on the other side of the equation when I used to work for mining companies, is that a lot of uh, businesses don't recognise around some of the complexities and nuances of working on mining operations, which are really tough, rugged environments, often, obvious, of, often you know, very um, you know, quite hot climates or very cold climates, quite remote locations, limited bandwidth for internet connectivity, etc. So actually being able to deploy a new technology onto a mine site is a non-trivial non exercise. And so we've built our product stack around how do we actually make it easy for a mine site to actually implement this technology as opposed to turning up to a mine site and having stuff constantly break down because it's not ruggedized for a, for a really harsh environment or it's really hard to install when you need lots of sophisticated you know, professionals to travel literally halfway around the world into remote locations for months on end to install it. We've tried to break all those things away and make it super simple to deploy the tech with a view being that if we can deploy the tech um, simply and easy for an operator to do on a mine site with, with limited training or experience, then we can get impact straight away. And, and that allows us then to have, you know, again, more impact across the industry. Yeah. And, and from, from the time you started the business, just wanted you to go over, I guess, what, what it was like going through the hiring process, um, you know, creating a business culture from scratch um, and also the, the impact that, that, that perhaps COVID and remote work has had on that as well. Yeah, so we we got our first round of external funding uh, literally just before COVID hit. So we, we we kind of received some funding from external investors, you know, Christmas 2019, and then you know by January 2020, the world was starting to get nervous, and then then uh, the rest, as we say, is history. So we had a really important decision to make at that point in time as to whether or not we batten down the hatches, go slow, and sort of see what happens, or whether we you know, say, well, you know, we've got to be able to work in all climates, all environments, let's find a way to continue to scale the business. So we continued to grow the business throughout that period and really focused on, you know, building out a team culture that we thought could be quite resilient to lots of external trades and shocks and, and the like. So when we when we start recruiting people, we always recruit in the first instance for character. We, you know, we try to find people that we think are the, of, of really good character aligned to um, the vision that we're trying to achieve for the business. And then we look at, you know, chemistry, how they're actually going to fit within um, the business. Are they actually complementary to the styles that we work within? Are they sort of aligned to our work practices and the like? And then there's a third third run. That's when we start looking at things like, you know, the actual technical competence. So we'll always, I guess, you know, err on the side of people that we think are the right cultural fit for the business before just getting somebody who happens to be, you know, a domain professional. Luckily for us, we end up recruiting a lot of people that are both, um, and we've worked really hard on creating a culture that is supportive of people, you know, trying things and being comfortable with trying things that may not always work. We have a lot of research in what we're doing and a lot of experimentation. So one of our guiding values is around, you know, this what we call an MVP mindset of, you know, trying as hard as you can within a fixed period of time to produce the result. And then not get too hung up your own personal character involved in the in the result. Just take the result for what it is, and then move on to the next decision. And the other you know value that's really important to us is what we call ego at the gate, where we say, hey, you know, everyone's got ideas to contribute. It doesn't matter whether you've been a 
physicist for 30 years or a geologist for three days, like everybody can contribute. People are going to make decisions. Some of them are going to work, some of them are not, but leave your ego behind. So with, as a business, we can collaborate openly and feel comfortable working in that environment. I think that's been really um, instrumental to the culture that we've built. And the third pillar that we've been um, instilling into our team and building the culture one is, is challenging principles over paradigms. So, you know, we wanted to create a business where we said to people, yep, you may come with lots of learned experience on how things work in other businesses, other environments, and that's all great. It's all part of your experience that you bring to the table. But when we're trying to make a decision or solve a problem, let's start with a fundamental uh, principle at play and then work out our own solution that's best for us. And we found that that also you know, helps foster a collaborative environment um, that, that people want to work in. So we've been able to scale pretty well through that period. Uh, we, we made a decision not to go to complete remote teams through COVID, which at the time was a controversial decision, but we felt it was really important with our product-led business that we had people bouncing ideas off each other, particularly in those early stages of the business where there was so much rapid iteration. And now we're scaling up, obviously, that the, the dial has shifted on that, but we found that um, you know, having your work environment where people can physically come in, see the hardware, see the technology, touch it, look at how it's all wired up has been helpful for us as we've you know, gone through the last phase of scale of our business. Yeah, and and just on that, how do you how have you gone about balancing that uh, obvious need for you know work life balance that we've seen become quite pre- quite prevalent over the last you know twelve twenty four months, um, but also you know that need to have people in a collaborative environment, um, and at the same time, there's obviously talent shortages throughout a lot of industries. Yeah, so. Yeah, we probably have a slightly inverse problem where because we have a, such a mission-driven business and we have people so passionate about what what uh, what they're working on, and from an engineering and technical point of view, like you know, this is a, a lot of exciting projects that are working on really complex sensors and artificial intelligence and real-time robotics. So we often have to like tap people on the shoulder and say, hey, it's you know, go home, go and spend some some time with your family because people are, are super mission-driven. So, you know, from that sense, we found that, you know, from a work-life balance point of view, because we do, from a cultural point of view, attract people that are aligned to our vision and aligned to our our, our mission, that, you know, people often are not, um, you know, getting to the end of their workday and feeling de-energised or that they've sat in meetings all day or spend lots of time, you know, sending and receiving emails. So we, we try to avoid all those unnecessary things that bomb people down and it gives them people the flexibility to to work on the stuff that they want to work on, stay energised and focused, and then you know be able to have have the balance that they need outside of that on on weekends and time with their family and and the like. So we found it's been pretty good. Our our retention rate is is exceptionally high. We've we've uh, you know basically managed to retain all the staff that we've hired. So we don't not seeing that mass turnover of people. You know the feedback from our staff is they really enjoy the culture we've created. You're being in a collaborative environment and people are super passionate about what we're working on. So yeah, I kind of feel you know, it's, it's always an evolving position, but you know, certainly feel like we're getting most of those pieces fundamentally right and, and, and building the type of business that we enjoy working in and our, and our team enjoys working in as well. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to dive in as well. An- another experience uh, that, that you know, would, would have been interesting going through for the first time, uh, you know, going through the process of, of getting financial backing for the company uh, to take those extra steps 
how is that as, as, as a learning experience for you? What, what, what have you taken away, um, you know, and, and what, what, will you, what have you learned from that, you know, these experiences of, you know, getting the likes of the investment vehicle of former Google CEO Eric Schmidt and that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, firstly, super steep learning curve. That's uh, probably, probably the steepest learning curve I've ever had in my, my career. Um, but on the same account, you know, it was was also really rewarding, and I looked at the opportunity to go and raise funds as as an opportunity to also, you know, take feedback. You know, so so for every every investor that we brought to the table, there were plenty of investors that said no, and I always use that as an opportunity to understand, you know, why we weren't a fit for them, or how we how better we could, you know, apply our trade and make a business more compelling, and you know, certainly found that you, the investors that we've predominantly got, which are mostly, you know, Silicon Valley based, so super sophisticated and there's some exceptional talent in, in all those companies. So we every interaction I have with them is also an opportunity to, to learn. So there was a steep learning curve getting the original investors on board and there was lots of lots of travel and lots of three AM meetings and four AM meetings and 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 the like. Um, but you know, and we still had obviously a lot to learn as we continue to scale and, and as the business grows, you bring in different investors who also have you know, different requirements for the stage of business that you're at. So it's a continual learning process. But um, certainly found that, you know, while it was daunting to begin with, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, most of the people that are running these these large scale, um, top end, you know, global leading venture capital firms are just super smart people, also super passionate about, you know, how they can help the world with, with new businesses and new technology and bring them to market. And talking to those people around what we're trying to do is actually a genuinely an energizing experience rather than deflating, even for the investors that aren't quite ready to, to, to back us. Yeah, for sure. And just going into some some recent news, the most recent funding round, a, a $25 million round, what, what will this round enable you to do? And, and also looking, you know, towards the remain the remainder of the year and into the future, um, you know, what what's on the cards? Yeah, so it's a super exciting time for us as we as we scale up. And this largest latest round of funding really has allowed us to move from straight deep tech, where we're doing you know really researchy stuff, solving some really hard problems, and getting some degree of commercial traction, to now essentially moving through that you know velocity of of engagement with the industry, refining the products to a point that they're quite commercially scalable. Um, and so it's a really exciting time for us. We, we're using the funds mostly for continuing to group, recruit engineering staff. So we've got lots of software engineers, lots of data, machine learning, AI professionals, geologists, physicists, um, lots of um, you know, technical uh, opportunities still to develop. Um, and then you know, the other part is building out that commercial presence as we start to engage the market more actively. So we have a presence now in in Brisbane, where the uh, the original engineering team has been based, we also have an Adelaide office and a Perth office, and we've also um, have a have an office in in Brazil for our um, you know first lot of you know, embedded uh, international appointments into Brazil, and we also have a presence in North America that we're expanding out. So the use of funds is really focused on you know continuing to excuse me bring in top talent, um, and then. Um, to build out a, 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 our our fundamental commercial presence in those different jurisdictions. Yeah, and and those interesting. You, you you talk about you know having international offices and that sort of thing. What, what was that experience like? Um, how how hard has it had has it been to to recruit people who are not in the same country? Um, a lot of late night calls and that sort of thing. I expect and 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 what sort of what sort of things have you learnt from those experiences? 
Yeah, so um, South, South America is interesting in that a lot of the legal uh, requirements are very different from what we're used to in Australia and even into USA and, and Canada. So transacting between Australia and the US and Canada, you know, there's a lot of crossover. Um, obviously, there's a common language. Um, a lot of the legal infrastructure that's in place for corporations is, is relatively well aligned. A lot of the business rules and understanding is how to transact and do business is relatively well aligned. So there is some some definite nuance between North America and Australia, but by and large, you know, it's it's one of the sort of more easy jurisdictions to to set up into. Um, and recruiting people in that area, you know, it's about building upon our existing networks and collaborating with with our existing investors and other people that we know that are working that space and then you know essentially hiring through that domain. South America's um, certainly trickier and a lot more moving parts to actually get uh, things happening there. But we also see South America as being a huge opportunity for us. It's a very strong mining presence in South America, particularly in, in copper, gold, battery metals, iron ore. Um, so it's really important for us to lay a solid foundation there. We're super lucky that one of our foundation employees, I think employee number five, um, actually put her hand up to go and set up our Brazilian office. Um, so And she speaks fluent Portuguese and, and Spanish. So knowing our business, knowing the team, and then then um, heading over to, to Brazil to establish that presence has been a, you know, an absolute major win for us that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to get. Yeah, and just and, and we sort of look to the future already, but where do you see the company in, in five to 10 years' time? Where would you like to be? And, and where, where, do you, where should you think the industry should be aiming to be as well? Yeah, I certainly think starting with the industry position, you know, the industry has to go through this massive uh, shift in the way that they run mining operations. And, and we really feel we're right at the, the pointy end of actually enabling that and making it happen. And it's really about, you know, as you spoke about right up front, this idea of producing the resources without causing, you know, any sort of environmental or, or carbon impact. So we've got to go through that process as an industry. Um, central to going through that process is the stuff that we're working on, which is really around this idea of, you know, providing a very sophisticated layer of, of understanding of the entire ore body or all the rocks in the mine and then using that to drive optimization decisions. So we see ourselves as being really central to the next phase of the business. And then that leads into our, essentially our ambition for the next five to 10 years of continuing to say, well, you know, mining is an international industry. We're building an international business. We need to have presence in all those key jurisdictions where mining takes place. We need to have, you know, really strong collaborative partnerships with mining companies to actually implement the technology and make sure that the technology is well utilised, which you know, then leads back to that net benefit for, for, for the industry and, and uh, society at large. Yeah, definitely excited to to see what comes next, and 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 just to the final question of this podcast, which we always finish with, which is what is your silver bullet for success? And you know, we had a quick chat with this uh, beforehand, but you know, what is it that you've done differently throughout your career that that you believe has allowed you to succeed over people that think you know, if you just rock up and work hard every day, you'll you'll succeed? How have you disrupted? Yeah. It's actually, I guess, a silver bullet, you know, is probably a little bit nerdy. But when I was um, working in industry, I got around to 2016. I was in an executive role and you know, had a really good paying job and um, sort of had a career trajectory that was pretty well well trotted. Um, I quit my job to go and start a PhD um, to really understand this opportunity. And so for me, you know, I think there's probably two pieces to that. One is, you know, 
uh, what I'd recommend to anybody going through any stage of their their career journey is to be willing to take a risk. You know, be willing to back yourself. You know, when I did that, it was a lot of people said you're super crazy, like going and doing a PhD in your mid thirties, like, and you've got a job and kids and a house and whatever else. Like, what, what's what's wrong with you? Um, I don't know what's wrong with me, but you know, I did it anyway. Um, but then the other part of it is actually that PhD, while it's not informative for a lot of people, when I did it back from 2016 to 2018, essentially, um, I found that really diving into this opportunity, which I'm already super passionate about and spending a lot of time just really thinking deeply about how we could actually unlock this value, uh, was actually time really well spent. Um, and, and certainly, you know, if you're passionate about something, you know, be willing to actually go hard at that and not be too worried about the dollars and cents side of things because that all sort of come away as a, as a byproduct of, of the passion that you're pursuing. Yeah, that's a really cool way of thinking about it. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat today. Thank you. It's lovely talking to you.